0: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie It's Tuesday,
4: 1st of November on The Michael Reed Show this morning. Is the country at breaking point trying to deal with the number of Ukrainian refugees? Is it now time to call a halt? Or does our moral obligation to help those fleeing war outweigh all other concerns? Will there or won't there be an election called in the north by the Northern Ireland Secretary? Time is running out as last-ditch talks get underway with party leaders today. Average mortgages hit a record high and the first €200 electricity grant takes effect from today. Good morning and welcome to the programme. Refugee and migrant rights organisation DURUS is concerned over increasing levels of unhelpful and misleading rhetoric about refugees from public representatives. It calls on all party leaders to ensure their members avoid populist rhetoric that unfairly demonises and scapegoats refugees, asylum seekers and migrants. The organisation says communities the length and breadth of Ireland have been extremely welcoming of people from Ukraine. It added that as the war continues we need to ensure that the Ukrainians feel safe and welcome in the communities they're living in. The same goes for people from other parts of the world who seek asylum here. That's according to Dura CEO John Lannon, who joins us this morning. John, thank you for joining us this morning. I'll come to those um, points in a moment, but first, if we could get your reaction to the events post-Friday's Incorporable Cabinet meeting, which dealt with many issues in relation to Ukrainian refugees and the problems they are facing. Let's deal, first of all, with accommodation. We're now looking at what's being termed as suitable accommodation, modular homes. You Listen to Patrick O'Donnell. I'm sure over the weekend, who spoke about the first of these 500 coming online in early 2023. Presumably, it's something that you welcome.
5: Well, indeed, the government has to, as it says, move from emergency response to a more mainstreamed approach, and we welcome that. And they have to look at other options beyond the hospitality sector, like the rapid build homes, um, refurbishments and all of the vacant and in some cases derelict buildings that we've got around the country. There, There is great potential yet um, to continue to accommodate people arriving from Ukraine or indeed from other parts of the world. So we are encouraged that the government is um, pushing ahead with a number of those initiatives and we're also encouraged that it recognising local efforts and making a €50 million community fund available. But um, we do also need to continue to ensure, as we've said, that um, refugees feel safe and feel welcome in communities the length and breadth
4: of Ireland. Now, talk to us a little bit about the decision post that meeting as well to double the payment for people hosting Ukrainian refugees from 400 to 800. Do you anticipate there will be a significant increase in the numbers of people who will come forward? And does it concern you if that increase is purely done on the basis of financial gain? Does that not say a lot about people who are coming forward?
5: I, I think it's welcome that the government recognises the, the huge effort. The, the length and breadth of the country by ordinary people who are making apartments, making houses and making rooms available for people and, and doubling the recognition payment um, will certainly help. Um, we know that there are more um, instances for pledged accommodation all around the country. Um, local authorities will be becoming more actively involved now, um, particularly through the, the vacant homes call and again, we feel that this is one of the the, the options that's um, worthy of further effort and consideration as people continue to arrive from Ukraine. Because we have to remember, when we look at the news over the last couple of days, we see how difficult and, and dangerous um, mm-hmm. things are still in that country.
4: But can I just ask you, just, just on that particular point, if we see a doubling of the money made available to host families... And we see a huge uptake as a result of that increase. Does that not then raise quest- questions over we're shifting it from a moral obligation on our part and we're thinking more about the financial implications of bringing in the refugees. We see it therefore as a transaction, a business transaction, if there is a huge uptake on that basis.
5: Well, there are a lot of business transactions taking place already when we look at the n- number of um, congregated settings, um, serviced accommodation provided to Ukrainians. One of the difficulties is that the concentration has been on large um, accommodation centres with um, in some cases hundreds of people in um, environments and in settings where all of the supports and all of the services may not have been adequate. So dispersal um, around the country and an opportunity for people to integrate into the communities is is really important. You know, people want to be able to get on with lives, get a degree of stability, get a degree of security, have their children going to schools, find a job and so on. And ultimately, you know, it's not just the reception and the accommodation parts Mm -hmm. that we need to To worry about. It's also the ongoing integration.
4: Okay, let's talk a little bit about then what you describe as potentially unhelpful rhetoric coming from uh, politicians primarily, and I presume you're talking about comments made by Sinn Fein when the uh, party leader spoke about, well, she used the phrase, our people. They're unhelpful comments, aren't they? There have been, um,
5: sadly, comments um right across the country we we've seen this in um not just in roscommon but in Mayo. we've seen it in Donegal. we've seen it from um independent and uh, politicians and members of political parties and um you know when when we see the um the government um stating it welcome intention to continue to keep the doors open for Ukrainians when we see them moving from emergency response to, to more mainstream approach and when the, the, the supports are going in place for local communities, it's really important that the political parties play their part and that they ensure that the work that's being done um, not just by the state and government but by community groups, by organisations, by ordinary people the length of and breadth of the country isn't undermined by its um, Its representatives in local councils or in in any other roles, and this is hugely unhelpful. You know, we're we we should, as a nation, be providing for all people who need a home here it's not about refugees versus homeless irish or vice versa it's about providing homes for for everybody ensuring that everybody and that that
4: is, is that is a laudable pursuit and it's something that irish people are very much to the fore in when they welcome people into this particular country but there comes a point does there not and one would be of the opinion we're very close to that point where The view has been expressed, we've made a bags of this from day one. We're now at a point where we can't take in any more refugees. And there are whispers which are starting to get louder and louder about the fact that we should now stop this. We've done our fair share. Let other people pick up the slack that we have been doing for the past year.
5: Regardless of the messages that that go out from from government or from... Um, Ireland about the, the lack of accommodation refugees or people seeking protection will continue to arrive here, whether it's from Ukraine or other parts of the world. And we do have legal obligations to them to permit people to make those applications for protection. So we're we're not, nor should we, even be considering um, stopping the inflow of refugees into Ireland. Numbers may reduce in in the the coming months, but we've always got to Mm -hmm. have the capacity to ensure that we can... And um, support well, the reception, well, well, the accommodation, and integration of refugees, as okay. well as housing Irish people that are homeless.
4: Okay, well, c- can we look then at perhaps the inequity that exists within Europe? For example, the number of refugees that have been taken in by France compared to Ireland per, per capita. Huge disparity there, and one can understand why people, some people in this country, are becoming frustrated by it. Um, th-
5: there certainly is an unevenness across Europe, so if you look at countries like Poland or Czech Republic, they have taken significantly more um, people from Ukraine per per capita than Ireland. Other countries have taken less. Um, We we do need to look more long-term across Europe at where and how the 8 million or so Ukrainians or people from Ukraine who had to escape from the country are going to be be accommodated and and we have to remember that while some people might be able to return to the country, this doesn't look like it's an option for people yet with the way things are going in the country and the cruise missiles landing Mm -hmm. and destroying infrastructure and so on and so forth.
4: John, can I ask you first of all perhaps to comment on the consequences of this so-called rhetoric that we're beginning to hear albeit not very loudly at the moment but it does, does it not, uh, you know, provide fertile ground for the rise of an ultra right wing view within this country that potentially can be fed by comments made, perhaps innocently, by whether it's politicians or other individuals in this country? Do we face the potential where we could hear comments akin to what Suella Breverman, the Home Secretary in the UK, said about ending the invasion of refugees from the south of England?
5: I mean, it it is very concerning when we see um, and hear comments that essentially begin to undermine social cohesion and, and all of the great work that has been done by um, communities the length and breadth of the country, and we have to say by the Department of Children who have managed to provide accommodation for tens of thousands of people over the last few months. Um, and and yes, you know the the, the comments from um, politicians um, emboldens others to to make similar. Spurious claims. Um, we've heard these in in communities around the country, where essentially lies were being um, perpetrated and 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 being uttered by by far right um, agitators within communities, and and that's desperately unfair on communities first of all on the ukrainians or people from other parts of the world um, who arrive here but it also divides communities it creates difficulties for for everybody because and we've seen this before with when attempts were, were were made to open direct provision centers around the country when communities got divided often by outsiders coming in to make spurious and to make and baseless claims about the people who are arriving to seek protection.
4: John, let me ask you before uh, I, I leave this this morning. Um, we're nearly a year into this conflict. There's no end in sight to it. We're looking into 2023 where potentially things get a lot worse for refugees. We will come under further pressure to take more of those refugees in. If you were to uh, you know, look at a report card for government in terms of the way they've handled this, how would you score them?
5: When people started to arrive from Ukraine, I think government's initial response was was very positive and constructive. They set up a one-stop shop in um, Dublin Airport. They uh, ensured that people had access to PPS numbers, to medical cards, and so on. Um, and as time went on, we um, continued to provide accommodation for people as they came in. But government have been slow to move to a more mid- to long-term approach to the reception, the accommodation and integration of of refugees. We found that the Department of Children have been left carrying the can to a large extent for this on their own. And and we have... um, an ongoing need to ensure that there's better coordination between the national and local level. Local authorities play a crucial role in all of this as well. They know where the accommodation is available. They know what's required, whether it's suitable or not, and what's required to bring it into service. So we need better coordination. We, we need a coherent, long-term vision okay. for, for this. And, and government needs to do more on that
4: still. Doris CEO, John Lannan, joining us this morning. Thank you for joining us.
6: Michael Reed on LMFM.
4: Good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. You're with Alan Cantwell sitting in for Mike for the next couple of days. If you want to contact the show, we're on 086 1800 658. The promised double child benefit payment will be paid out starting from today. 638,000 families across the state will receive €280. per child. The double payment was announced to the budget in September and Social Protection Minister Heather Humphreys says the increased payment is aimed at helping struggling families to deal with the cost of living. Well, Louise Bayless is a spokesperson with Spark Single Parents Acting for the Rights of Kids and she joins us this morning. Morning, uh, Louise. Thank you for joining us this morning. Um, This payment, coupled with the other payment of €200 for electricity bills, it's the first of three particular payments, amounts to uh, €480 per family. Not a bad payday, is it?
7: It's not about payday, Alan, um, but they would have been due the 140 anyway. So in real terms, it's an increase of 340 um, per household, per child. Uh, for some uh, for some families, it will make a huge difference. For other families who may be in the utility arrears who've been struggling already, uh, the 200 euro will be written off uh, in their arrears. There'll be no benefit going forward. Uh, and can I just add, like the 140 euro... For child benefit has not gone up in years and in fact it's still way below what it was pre-recession times. For instance in 2008 the child benefit was 166 per month. It has been 140 okay.
4: euros. So in essence so, this doesn't, doesn't come anywhere near the uh, rate of inflation as
0: we see it today.
7: Anywhere near the rate of inflation. If we were going back if we compare what uh, the 166 back in 2008 when it was then you would need to be getting 196 a week a month instead of the 140 so this extra what it equates is an extra 12 euro a month, it? it brings it up to 152. It is still in real terms 40 euros short of where we were back in 2008. So I think that gives some indication that it's not enough. We still have not protected children in this cost of living crisis.
4: Okay, but there's a recognition on the part of the Minister and the Government that we need to do something. It's not where you need to be. It's a start. It may take a little bit longer, but the process is underway nonetheless.
7: The process underway. A one-off payment doesn't seem like a process, Alan. I do think it's welcome, and and there will be many families, especially the timing of it, when people are you know planning to um, shop for Christmas. I do think that's really beneficial and helpful, but. I think it's not a process and that's the problem. It is not a targeted response. It is not ensuring those families who are most in need are getting it. It is 12 euro in essence essence a month, which is not going to cover the cost. For instance, if we look at the the work done by St. Vincent de Paul and the minimum essential standards of living, what we can see in that is next year, Say for instance, I'm, I'll talk about a lone parent, but it is the same for a two-parent family mm-hmm. living on social welfare. But next year, the, the, the shortfall each each week, not month, each week will be ninety-three euro short each week on what they need to survive. So
5: those.
4: those uh, sorry, those I'm I'm sorry for Gordon grasp. Can I just get back to that ninety-three? That's projected for how long? Presumably, it's done on the basis of inflation and what the expectation is. But that ninety-three euro per week, you see, lasting what, months, before we months, get to some sort yeah, of equilibrium? Yeah.
7: Well, I mean, I mean, at the moment, it's already at about 89 euros okay. because of cost inflation currently. But they're projecting next year, it'll go up to 93 euros per week. So that's a, that's a big shortfall. So that's not a process that has been looked at. And in fact, some of the things that were done in the government will be beneficial for children under 12. But the research, all the research shows that poverty is in where there are young, older, younger younger adults should I say, older children so from the 12 to 18 category that's where child poverty rests and yet there was nothing done for them so we had worked really hard for years to try to get the state to acknowledge this and to accept the evidence and in fairness that had happened so there were two differential rates in the increase in qualified child there was a rate for under 12 and over 12 that gap has narrowed this year so they put up the unqualified in child increase by 2 euro per week okay. um, and they
4: are, are, are you, are you taking I, I just need clarity on this are you taking into consideration here the cumulative effect of the measures which were introduced in the budget and will become law as it were in the finance bill in January oh, yes. everything is taken yeah. into consideration
7: everything everything is taken into account this report by St. Vincent de Paul it used to be the Vincentian Partnership but they're now cited in St. Vincent de Paul it's a, a recognised format that has been used for at least a decade or so where, where what they do is they cut cu- price the cost of everyday things. Uh, so your, your bag of sugar, your tea, your food on the table, your electricity, all of those things, and put it would be to have a minimum essential standard of living. Not a luxury lifestyle, but just enough to pay the bills. And for that, it, when you have children over 12, that shortfall from next, okay. next in January will be 93 euro a week. That's not-, not sustainable. And the 140 today well welcome, is
4: not going to bridge that gap. Okay, notwithstanding, I suppose, the moral obligation on the part of the government to protect the most vulnerable in society, i.e. children, nonetheless, they are also being dragged on the other side by other organisations, businesses, etc., that also need some sort of financial support. And on top of that, we're dealing with a global situation that is impacting on us because of the war in Ukraine. There's so many other variables at work. It's very difficult to get what you need in order to to, to bring a standard of living that's required for children I mean this is going to be a long process
7: Yeah, no, I absolutely recognise there are extenuating circumstances this year and, you know, there has to be acknowledgement that something is being done. So, you know, I will acknowledge that and it is a very difficult situation the government is finding itself in. However, what you do need to do is make sure, especially in times like that, that resources are targeted where needed. We know where resources are needed um, and we know it's in those households and it doesn't seem like any of the decisions made by government were based on actual evidence. That's all we had asked for this year just use the evidence you know we know where poverty is make sure those in poverty okay. are targeted and that didn't happen
4: just finally um, can i ask you perhaps if you could look into that crystal ball six months hence how do you see the situation will it deteriorate significantly that we will find a situation where more and more families that you represent that you advocate for will be experiencing poverty in some shape or form or is that already happening
7: that's already happening, Alan. It's, it's hugely already happening. But I think if we continue on on the basis that we are now and looking at it, it will not be sustainable. No family will be able to bridge that €93 euro a week shortfall. We will see children going to bed hungry, and that's a worrying, it's a worrying scenario. We foresee that there will have to be a mini-budget, and I know the government are very much saying that that will not happen But they did not do enough for children in this budget. They did protect other groups. They did not do enough. I mean, lone parents didn't get the one-off payments of 500 euro that other groups got. You know, so they don't have that. Their their payoff was the 140 that's going today.
4: Very good, Louise Bailey, spokesperson with Spark Single Parents, acting for the rights of children. Thank you for joining us this morning. Now, if you want to call us, our number this morning is 0861 800 658 with Alan Cantwell on the Michael Reed Show. The junior minister says new laws banning the sale of turf won't lead to punishments for those who burn turf from their own land. Jack Chambers says the new laws aren't aimed at people who cut and burn their own turf. However, the Daily Mail reports that those who burn turf excessively could face jail terms of up to two years or a €13,000 fine. Joining us this morning is Independent TD, Michael Fitzmaurice. Deputy, good morning. Thank you for joining us morning, Alan. How are you? I'm very well. Now, can I just say at the outset, I know we had a conversation prior to this, Michael. Your voice is not great this morning, and it's purely as a result of a charity auction you were at yesterday, and you had to scream very loudly, which you're very good at doing, may I add. No no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Should people draw other conclusions, that is the real story here. Let's get back to the story of today. Can you explain to me, Michael, if, for example... My brother has rights to cut turf on a piece of bog and he gives me turf, gifts it to me, and I burn that turf. Am I operating within the laws?
3: Yes, is the answer. Um, But there is a spanner thrown in the works near the end. I'll just go through it fairly briefly.
4: Okay, do that.
3: If you own a turf bank um, under the new regulation, you have a right to cut it, to give it to your brother or your sister or whoever you want, or to sell it. That's that's under that's in the regulation. Um, and it also states in at the moment under the regulation um, and under the frequently asked questions, that if you have old stocks bought in before the regulation was signed, you have a right to use them. Now, where it is thrown the spanner in the works, Alan, um, I wouldn't all out agree with the headline in the paper that if you burn be it turf or coal or whatever excessively um, you could be facing this no part of it does say excessively but what it states is and this is the sting in the tail that we are looking at since yesterday um, that if you are using one of those solid fuels um, that if your neighbour believes that you're a nuisance to them um, and like we know in every county there is a lot of people that might can get on with their neighbour or whatever they can they can um, ring the local authority to report someone to basically a snitch and uh, someone from the council would have to go to your house or my house or whatever house But but how
4: do you police that and how do you ascertain whether or not that your neighbour is actually affected in some shape or form by you burning turf unless it's blowing in their window from your chimney
3: yeah, look at it's it's virtually impossible to be quite frank about it, but this is the problem that will incur or will ensue by putting in this basically this wording. And um, that look at when someone rings up and you know it now, Alan, as well as I know it now, is if someone rings up and makes a complaint, that complaint has to be acted on mm-hmm. because the person that's working in the job um, would be obliged to go out and check it out, and it's going to. Look, as you have rightly pointed out, it's unenforceable. Jack Chambers, um, obviously, he doesn't know a lot about the regulation when he says if you own a turf bank and you cut it, you can burn it. There is more to it than that. You can cut it, give it, or sell it. That's that's the wording on it. But this last piece has left it. There's, look, there could be some people within a, a small town or whatever that would be concerned if they weren't in great uh, relationship with our neighbour, that this sort of nuisance, I would call it a nuisance call, um, would be done. And it has sort of, you know, put a dirty sting in the tail. But I do think the likes of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, I know the Greens don't want to do this, and it's probably them that has put the sting in the tail. Um, I think that the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil GDs need to stand up uh, over the next week and get clarification on this as I will be doing as well
4: and are we at a point where we can still finesse this legislation if 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 it's required
3: well any regulation can be um any regulation can be yeah. changed or any regulation a uh, regulation is signed in by a minister mm-hmm. and you can push um an appendix or whatever in relation to that and I think the Minister, Ryan, needs to cop on and do this rather than, you know, it was resolved during the summer. And one, one other part of this, that isn't a good thing, in my opinion, um, we had thought as well that the likes of the fuel merchants, that we we do this in a transition. The fuel merchants um, are the filling station in light of the Ukrainian war, because we must remember. And if you look at the television um, over the last few days, be it in Poland, be it in Hungary, be it in all the European countries, they're cutting up every type of a stick at the moment to try and keep themselves warm, and we should first of all, at a time of crisis, make sure that we have fuels available to our people, and um, while the war is on, the, for the fuel merchant and for the filling station, I think we were looking for um, at least a two-year extension okay. for those, the way that those that people, vulnerable people, would be looked after. Unfortunately, he yes, hasn't given that, and um, we have the word, the wording as it is. But this thing in the tail puts a small bit of doubt into it that needs to be clarified and needs to be... make sure that there's a resolution found.
4: Okay, Michael, thank you for that. That's independent uh, Deputy Michael Fitzmaurice joining us this morning. Michael,
3: Michael Reid
6: on LMFM.
4: Welcome back to the programme. We'll get to your comments a little bit later on in the second hour of the programme. If you want to call us, our number as always is 0861800658 658. Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Chris Heaton-Harris has confirmed that he will hold talks with Northern Ireland party leaders today. Mr. Heaton-Harris said he will also have discussions with the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Cohen Later in the week, it follows his failure to call a fresh assembly election on Friday, despite his insistence that an announcement was on the cards. He has a legal obligation to call one after Stormont politicians failed to reform an executive by midnight last Thursday. That was six months on from the May assembly election. Well, joining us this morning is Funograil spokesperson on European affairs, Neil Richmond. Deputy, thank you for joining us this morning. I know you had a meeting with the British ambassador early this morning. I'll come to that in a moment. But just for the purposes of this interview, Would you mind explaining to us what the protocol is and why the DUP have such a problem with it? Because more often than not, when this topic comes up for conversation, protocol, when it's mentioned, people switched off. So just explain it to us in the simplest terms, Deputy.
2: Yeah, so when the UK decided to leave the European Union, they decided to leave both the single market and the customs union. That means there needs to be checks And goods, uh, checks on goods as they leave and enter the UK the only country with a land border with the UK is ourselves, the border on our island. So obviously the return of cheques on our border would require a hard border, which is something that no one wants to go back to and indeed is reminiscent of the dark days, the troubles. So a solution was concocted, known as the Northern Irish Protocol, whereby Northern Ireland remains in uh, the single market and the customs union. Therefore, there's no requirement Mm. of cheques north-south. However, that does require a small amount of cheques on goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain, at the three or four ports of entry, Belfast Port, Belfast Airport, things like that. The DUP have long argued that this uh, affects the constitutional status, makes them feel less British and limits access to a certain amount of goods, albeit a very small amount for people in Northern Ireland, that they usually could get from Great Britain. Um, bear in mind the DUP are the party that pushed Brexit the hardest. They were warned that Brexit would come with very serious ramifications, and unfortunately, they have not come up with a single solution okay. of the, uh, to the problems that they indeed have created themselves.
4: Now, let's get to what is happening at the moment. we will come to Chris Eaton-Harris in a moment. You met with the ambassador this morning. Mm. Can you divulge the conversation you had with him? What came out of it? What was topping the agenda?
2: Well oh, certainly the top of the agenda is every effort by the British and Irish government to get the assembly back up and running and more importantly between the UK and the European Commission to hammer out a deal on the implementation of the protocol. And we both agreed that we think certainly the mood around that has got much better and that there has been good and frank talk between the Foreign Secretary, James Clevery, and European Commissioner, Maris Sefcovic, in recent weeks. And there is, both of us would agree there's a prospect of a deal on the protocol by December. Will it be enough for the DUP? I don't know. I don't don't think so, to be honest.
4: Why the reluctance on the part of Chris Heaton-Harris to call an election? Do you get the sense that there's some back-channel negotiations going on that could perhaps lead to some form of compromise and thus a deal?
2: Well, certainly there's ongoing discussions. As you mentioned, the Secretary of State will meet the Northern Irish party leaders this morning. He will also speak with the Minister of Foreign Affairs on Thursday. But he himself has stated publicly that... Based on the legislation, he's required to call the election. He didn't have to call it immediately. He has a number of weeks to do so. He has spoken to the head of the Northern Irish Civil Service. He's spoken to the electoral office to see what the mechanics around that would be. Likely, uh, an election would be called um, in the middle of December. The 15th of December is is the estimated date. But there has been an element of a pause. You know, if that could allow some sort of agreement for the DUP to enter the executive to... Form an assembly to elect an assembly speaker, all well and good. Um, to, to his credit, the Secretary of State is throwing everything at this. However, he has stated very, very clearly over the mass number of weeks that he will call an election uh, if the deadline is missed the deadline has been missed uh, I think it's only a matter of time now before he does call albeit a very unnecessary and unwanted election
4: Even if privately the DUP feel that they're fighting a losing, losing battle here there is an imperative on them to represent the people of Northern Ireland who are aligned to their views on what Northern Ireland is and what it means to them and they have to, they have to see that through to the bitter end You recognise that don't you?
2: Yeah, but you don't represent people by boycotting. You represent people by taking up your seats, taking up your responsibilities and having that voice heard. Crucially, the one voice that hasn't been heard loudly enough in the last 12 months is the voice of the people of Northern Ireland, unionist, nationalist and other. They, don't, they haven't taken up their seat in terms of North-South institutions, in terms of the wider institutions, the Good Friday Agreement that involve the British government and the devolved administrations. But also, when the European Commission and the British government are negotiating on the implementation of the protocol, it's very, very important that political unionism are engaged in that conversation. They can't be engaged in that conversation when they're not taking up their seats and they're allowing people with no electoral mandate to shout in and rally up concerns and fears amongst communities.
4: Now, where is the end game in this for the DUP and the protocol? You spoke about Morosetkovic, the deals, the negotiations that are going on, but, but they're protracted at this stage and they don't seem to be going anywhere. So where does it end?
5: Well,
2: I'd actually argue the negotiations and the protocol have actually sped up over the last couple of weeks. We're in a much better position than we were, say, during the summer. Negotiations are back in. Um, James Garvey and Morosetkovic are ready to put their teams into the so-called negotiating tunnel. And I sincerely believe there will be an agreement on the implementation of the protocol that will be agreeable to both the British government and the European Christians. But uh, crucially, Alan, this will make things a lot easier for the people in Northern Ireland. The protocol hasn't been fully implemented yet, but so far Northern Ireland's actually benefiting by still having the full access to the single market. Now for the DUP, that's a decision they'll have to make. Do they continue to boycott? Do they continue to avoid the, the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement? Do they realise that they could sell this very much as a win, that Northern Ireland is going to have a very good economic opportunity and um, post-Brexit, an opportunity that the rest of the regions of the United Kingdom don't have, but they have managed to get some concessions, um, albeit some might be a bit superficial on key areas, and that we can make this work and actually get people in Northern Ireland the best opportunities because it's crucial in these very difficult cost of living days post-pandemic the people in Northern Ireland aren't being able to get the level mm-hmm. of benefits that other people in the United Kingdom are because they don't have a working administration.
4: Just before I leave it Deputy um, without getting into the history of Northern Ireland and it's been an appalling history at times but mm-hmm. what we have found from the history of Northern Ireland where a vacuum exists there tends to be trouble not too far away Are we in a situation in the North where there is that unease, there's that tension as a result of what is not happening up there?
2: Well, it's certainly not as bad as the many, many dark days that you would have covered in great detail in your career. But there is a lot of things to be worried about. We see threatening letters from distant loyalist paramilitaries. We see people... Um, encouraging loyalist paramilitaries to somehow become the new voice uh, of disaffected communities. Um, It is definitely something that's precarious. However, I do have great faith that the vast, vast, vast 99.9% of people in Northern Ireland and indeed elected representatives will never let things get as bad as they can get. But the responsibility now on all parties, unions, nationalists or other, is to show that they can make the arrangements, the arrangements of the Good Fight Agreement work for the people
4: very good, we leave it there for the Gael Spokesperson on European Affairs, Neil Richmond, thank you for joining us
6: Michael Michael Reed on LMFM
4: Welcome back to the programme a man is recovering in hospital after being shot on the stomach at a house in Dundalk a dog at the property is understood to have been shot dead, residents in Woodbury Gardens thought fireworks were being set off when they first heard the gunshots, it's understood four shots were fired into the sitting room of the property in the estate, a man in his 40s received non-life-threatening injuries, no arrests have been made and Investigations are said to be ongoing. Local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Maraku has condemned the shooting and says the victim is lucky to be still alive and he joins us uh, this morning. Uh, Rory, thank you for joining us. What can you tell us about this particular individual's condition? Have you had a chance to perhaps talk to him or any of his relatives since this incident?
8: Um, I, I have spoken, obviously, to the guards. I've spoken to neighbours. I haven't spoken to the family themselves. I was on the scene on the Saturday night when it happened, uh, and myself and local councillor Kevin Meanin, um, we went there the next day. Now, uh, obviously, the man was in hospital, and and the family weren't around, and there was still uh, a guide, The guards were still investigating at the scene, so um, we didn't have an opportunity to do that. Hopefully, we'll be we will have an opportunity to talk to the family uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, I believe he's in a fairly safe and secure uh, way. Um, Very glad that this didn't end up being a lot worse than it could Mm -hmm. have been. Um, Obviously, there's been much in the media in relation to the fact that a dog was killed um, and the man was shot a couple of times. So, as I say, this was incredibly serious in a built-up residential area. Mm -hmm. Um, Deputy,
4: what what can you tell us about that area? Is it known to be a problematic area or is it just a regular, ordinary place?
8: Um, I couldn't point out how quiet this particular area is. Um, literally, the guards and the residents, every person brought it up just how quiet it is, how unexpected it is. They actually spoke about this man and how much of a quiet man he was. They literally spoke about their interactions were generally him walking his dog. Um, look, a, a very civil man, by by all accounts, Uh, and that this is utterly unexpected here and has to be condemned to the highest level from a point of view of the danger to not only this man and anyone else who may have been in the house. Um, Luckily, there wasn't at the time. Um, But anything could have happened. We're talking about 8 o'clock on a Saturday evening. We're talking in the middle of the Halloween holidays. We're talking about kids could have been around. Anything could have happened. Also... Dark at night I'm not entirely sure what these guys saw when they were shooting through a sitting room window and that's the problem and we need to ensure that all is done. The guards have already asked for any information anybody who would have dash cam footage or anything like that who was in Woodbury Gardens any time on Saturday night between half seven and half eight I believe they're going to make a more comprehensive Statement in the next while, possibly in relation to type of cars and other information. Sure,
4: but just in relation to your conversation with the Guardian not wanting to get into the minutiae of their investigation and where it's going, to get the sense that the Gardaí are following some form of line, definite line of inquiry in relation to this.
8: Well, the Gardaí say. In, in fairness, I, I spoke to the superintendent this morning, and what he told me is that there had been a huge level of work that had been done and that the investigation is is ongoing. and They know exactly where they're going at this point in time, okay. uh, but I don't have the information in relation to that. I don't think it would be particularly helpful. I think the reason that I'm highlighting the issue is we're dealing with a very serious set of circumstances where on a Saturday night in Dundalk, in a very, very quiet part of the town, People think it's okay to come in and to shoot up a sitting room, and that we're very lucky that we're not dealing with a man dead and other things that could have happened in the sense that um, what would have happened if somebody else had come upon him, uh, come upon these guys? What would have happened if uh, a kid happened to be in the street? We have, as I say, this was an absolutely dreadful set of circumstances, but it could have been. Much, much
4: worse. Okay, so so are we at a point, deputy, where you are calling on the guardie perhaps to have random armed patrols of the area in the short term, or is that a requirement? Do you believe? I mean, you spoke about it being a quiet area and not problematic. So, is there a need for that?
8: Well, in fairness, after this was happened, after this happened, two things would have happened: the guards obviously secured the area; they would have had, um, they would have had guards at at. At that particular premises, they would have had people investigating. Um, I would have seen the armed support units driving in and around. So I'm fairly sure they're taking all that into account in relation to what needs to.
5: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,
8: happen. Okay. Hopefully that the investigation moves on as quickly as possible, that everyone who has any piece of information provides that to the Garda. Look, we're in a very different world than we were a number of years ago in the sense of just the amount of weaponry that is out there and the fact that there are criminals out there that believe that they have a right to do this and think they can do it with impunity. So we need to be as strong as possible in relation to them sending that message that that's not okay. Very good. I know we have a wider issue in relation to organised crime. The entire issue as regards drugs and whatever. And we are absolutely failing in relation to how we deal with that. And we need to be far more novel. But at this point in time... We have people who've been attacked. We need to ensure that they are supported, that they are secure, and we need to ensure that the message goes out that this is not okay, and that these people are caught and put
4: away. Very good. Deputy, we must leave it there. Deputy Rory O'Muraku joining us this morning with the very latest on that. Let me bring you some of the comments in relation to some of the matters we covered in the first half of the programme. Uh, around the refugee issue, John from Drogheda says, we are a small country and can't bring the world in. He says he doesn't know what is going to happen to Ireland if this continues. Ireland can't handle the numbers we're currently taking in. The government needs to put a quota on the number of people we are accepting. Nora thinks that we need to slow down our intake of refugees until we get our act together and can house and accommodate them properly It's unfair to expect people to come into the country and then ask them to sleep in a tent or on the floor of a state building These people are fleeing for their lives It's not like they are choosing to come here They are literally being forced out of their own country They deserve to be treated respectfully and to be made feel safe once they get here Phil says, it's hardly surprising that our government has made a mess of dealing with these coming into the country for protection. They cannot seem to get any of these projects right or run them in a proper manner. They always make a fiasco out of something that should actually be straightforward. Anne says, we have a moral obligation to help those fleeing for their lives. We cannot abandon them in their hour of need. The Irish were welcomed all over the world and now it's our turn to do our part. We have more comments to come. We'll bring them to you a little bit later in the programme.
6: Michael Reed,
4: Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. A new Banking and Payments Federation report shows average mortgage prices are continuing to increase. Home loans are now almost 6% higher than they were during the peak of the Celtic Tiger. It comes despite signs the market is cooling and more properties are becoming available. Let me just uh, perhaps uh, bring this into some sort of context when it comes to pounds, shillings, and pence. The average mortgage uh, stood at €284,623 in the third quarter of the year, surpassing levels seen during. During the peak of the market in 2008, when it was €268,220. David Hall, CEO of iCare Housing and co founder of the Irish Mortgage Holders uh, Organization, joins us this morning. David, good morning. Thanks for joining us. signs that the market is cooling well presumably that may happen as a result of an increase in mortgage interest rates but more properties are becoming available maybe they are but not in the sort of numbers that's required in order to bring a sense of reality back to the price of property in this country presumably
9: no I think uh, the key word you mentioned there Alan is reality and I think uh, there's a number of features a number of factors happening that have probably never happened before in this in such a in such a tight time frame like every month that goes by the circumstances of the marketplace changes around housing you know mortgage interest rates you mentioned cost of living you know we don't know what the banks use as an assessment tool themselves in respect of um, you know stress testing uh, interest rates in the future cost of living a whole host of challenges the market most certainly does not have the number of properties that the, the, the demand requires and that is a major major issue I think one of the key features in this report that's slightly misleading and slightly um sort of towards things is the number of people who are switching mortgages. So in the great panic in relation to protecting people against variable rate mortgages, many people took advice from um, the market and and many of us over the last couple of years to fix, and that has been happening in much larger numbers than ever before. So therefore, those are classed as drawdowns for mortgages. Therefore, that does increase the value of the loans um, being lent by banks and obviously pushes it up maybe artificially and it's just you know sometimes the switching rules Alan as you would know and appreciate won't allow you to switch euro for euro you'd have to have some equity in your property uh, and therefore there's a value and, and a drawdown differentialist there so it looks they may look slightly artificially high but look this is the dysfunctional market it's, we've got a war we've got a cost living crisis we've got interest rates increasing with further three meetings of the ECB to come we've got some of those rates have been passed on by some lenders some have not been passed on by lenders but there simply is not enough houses for people to buy
4: Yeah okay we're, we're hearing the calls from you know embattled potential purchasers of homes who have managed to get a mortgage and then it's been pulled from them at the last minute because of the circumstances around what is happening as you said globally and uh, closer to home but it's a case of, you know something, suck it up. That's just the way it is. If you want to get a mortgage, this is what you have to do. These are the parameters you have to work within. We all had to do it in some shape or form. Everybody faced difficulty down through the years. So it's just a fact of life and we have to live with it.
9: Yeah, I think, I think yeah, you could, t- you could take that point of view. I think it's it's a very reasonable. You know, we have a lot of questions. A lot of questions are slushing around in people's heads. You know, we have 11,000 people um, homeless uh, living in emergency accommodation. Miraculously, by some turn kind of events, we were able to accommodate 50,000 uh, visitors from a war-torn country. We have an increase in interest rates, and we don't have enough homes and houses. We have a very different so, situation. It's, it's,
4: it's, David, sorry, I'm just going to bring you back to that point. So you're saying that there's different rules for refugees coming in from Ukraine as opposed to Irish people who are homeless or not in I just, what's considered I, I just to be find, fixed I, it,
9: I, just, I, I think many people will find it very um, upsetting that uh, we were able to get all the dots joined, all the policies were able to happen very fast. Like, theoretically speaking, there's 11,000 people who are homeless and many on the streets for various reasons and many struggling in, in, in accommodation. And this is very important, Alan, because this is back to your fundamental point about saying, suck it up and maybe not buy your house, not have your house. A home, a house, safe housing should be a constitutional right. All of those contexts make you uh, survive as a person, make you thrive in the community, make your family and your, those people in your life and make you function in society better. That's evidenced worldwide. Yet we have 11,000 people in emergency accommodation of which 3,000 are children. And we should, technically speaking, have 61,000. Now, I was never great at maths in school. I admit that. But 50,000 plus 11,000 is 61,000. But we don't have 61,000 people in emergency accommodation. We've got, uh, are on the streets. We've been able to accommodate we've been able to take over hotels we've been able to purchase sped spaces in hotels for prolonged periods of time to bring people and house them and we should have and we should have played our part in relation to the Ukrainian war and um, i think there's a point But in not time but
4: in your mind not to the extent in which we have in terms of the numbers Why couldn't that have come we do that here?
9: why couldn't we do it for 11,000 my issue is not meant to do with any Ukrainian people my issue is who woke up one day and decided that they were able to put in place policy changes to accommodate 50,000 people when we already had 11,000 people struggling. Yeah, but you know, David,
4: it's a different proposition when you're fleeing war, when you're leaving your house that has probably been bombed and razed to the ground and you're leaving at the point of doesn't a gun. Change. You know, it's, a, it's a different prospect. It doesn't, doesn't change the Irish housing policy.
9: Why did the bomb, why did the war change the Irish housing policy?
4: Because we have a moral obligation to take in people who we are... Have
9: a moral, we have a moral obligation to house the
4: 11,000 people who are homeless. So how do you propose yeah. we do that, and why well, do you we, think the government have got it so wrong? So what? Basis, so what are we saying? Like it's two fingers to people in Ireland who don't have the accommodation, and let's open our gates to everybody who has, uh, you know, who has to flee a country because of war or because of persecution. Is that what you're saying? We don't care about our own, or the government don't care about them?
9: No, I think I think there's 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 a policy uh, emphasis and a policy change that happened very suddenly. I'm very welcomed, but I'm just wondering why the creativity hadn't happened prior to that. We're miraculously now looking at modular homes, Alan. All of a sudden, modular homes have been on the agenda for eight years. We have 11,000 people who could benefit from modular homes. Yet there was no interest and in enthusiasm about doing modular homes. They've been delayed for years. Modular homes is not new. Modular homes didn't come from NASA and space, or didn't just get created during COVID or after COVID. Modular homes have been a feature of housing policy for a significant period of time. Many jurisdictions, many organizations have been here trying to sell those modular homes. And and now we have a situation where miraculously this policy agenda is being accelerated because we don't. We have a mathematical problem of not being able to accommodate the additional people we've taken into the country. And I agree with you, the war-torn, like I, I've been heavily involved in relation to bringing medical supplies to... Yeah, I'm, uh,
4: I'm aware of that, country. yeah
9: work with the HSE and stuff. So I fully support those from the Ukraine coming. That's not the issue. The issue is not people correctly being housed and accommodated. It's the miraculousness of being able to be creative when under pressure, when that um, policy didn't happen sooner. That's my objection. And it comes back to your earlier earlier comments, which are correct to say, why don't people just suck it up and see? The current rules are very, very difficult for people. They will favour people who are in a much greater position firepower-wise financially to be able to buy houses and, and accommodate themselves. But ultimately, it is a fundamental policy for people in their okay. homes.
4: Well, what's your view then in relation to the loosening up of rules and regulations from the central bank around the amount of money that um, potential homeowners can can borrow that's surely helpful is it not or is yeah, that is. completely it is. It is ameliorated helpful. as a result of the interest rate increases
9: yeah it's it's helpful but it's only one part of this like anybody and myself included in the last couple of years who have moved homes or who have bought property uh, and and gotten a mortgage which I, I moved family home two years ago it's a torturous experience on like just it's not rocking into the bank saying harry i'm paid 50 grand that's multiplied that by four give me 200 grand that's what's being perceived FSD is being a very simplistic policy at the moment. And the central bank was very clear to say this is not a, a definite four time salary. That's a guidance. Um, and the real question is what are the lenders lending at the moment? Because prior to this increase, by the way, I remember none of the banks uh, had indicated the previous rule was two and three and a half times. Mm-hmm. They were doing two and a half times to stress test. So we don't actually know. It's very much individualised. If you've got other lending on cars or other vehicles or other assets, that's also taken into consideration. So it is not an automatic four times. Most certainly, is it helpful? Yes, it is helpful. But ultimately, the most helpful thing that could happen at the moment is the building of property. And if you're looking at any builder, builders, developers, one of whom i have just literally left in a very nice insomnia shop here to have a conversation with him about building social housing for us in And one of the biggest challenges is, what happens to finances in relation to borrowing to build and how much will we be able to pay for those houses in two years' time. Mary and Joe, who are looking to buy buy a house in any part of the country, how is the builder going to know how much Mary and Joe can pay in two years' time? So I respectfully suggest we've got a much greater difficulty in relation to the supply coming up, but I don't know where I know the Bank of Payments Federation said there might be more properties available, like if you only have a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand and you add on another couple of hundred, technically speaking yes, it's a couple of hundred, it's nowhere near the 35,000 per year that's required
4: Okay, the number of units aside, let's look at the financial implications of what is happening in Europe, the cost of living crisis etc, etc, etc the reality is the days of low interest rates are gone. They're a thing of the past. We now have a, a new world order when it comes to finances within Europe that we're not going to see the historic lows, that we're going to get to a point where they will be significantly higher, albeit that they're small, compared to what they were for the past 10 years, if that makes sense. So that has to be taken into consideration.
9: No, it has the world has changed and, and And you're right, the funding in the world has changed from a financial perspective it's going to be much much more difficult, and th- there's going to be a permanency around the higher rates and that's going to have a significant impact. But who pays for that and 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 don't forget you, you go also at the vulture funds who have taken over a significant amount of loans in Ireland and home loans in Ireland who don't have the massive deposits the banks have to play around with, and their cost of, cost of um funding is massive, but you know you said reality there Alan, like Academically, 9.1%, whatever it is, is the, you know, the inflation rate.
5: Mm. The real
9: inflation rates near near 15%. Anybody living in the real world who's buying stuff every day knows how much this impact is going to be and knows what the, next, the winter is going to look like. It's going to be very difficult and very trying and very testing. And from a housing perspective, yeah, people will have to pay higher interest rates and that's going to have a massive impact on lives and, and will radically change lives and dreams and hopes of many people, young and old, through the length of the rest of the country. And um, the affordable homes scheme that uh, Minister Bryan has brought in is very, very good. Cost rental scheme is very, very good. They need to be ramped up on a radical uh, mass scale. Like, radical and mass scale are the words missing from all of these policies at the moment because people think around the edges and, and just mention numbers and mention figures. But ultimately, we need big, big numbers. And this might be a golden opportunity okay. in the current market to what- build houses, take over all the builders... Bring all the builders in, say we're going to guarantee a bit of a profit for the next couple of years, and we're going to do what we did in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. We are going to build homes, affordable, social, and cost rental by the state take over all the various organisations and build. They'll all be happy to have a job and happy to function for the next couple of years.
4: Right, let's talk about the elephant in the room and it has been discussed over the past decade and that is what will happen to those tracker mortgages once interest rates begin to creep up. That is happening. There is significant overhang when it comes to the number of people on trackers and they are the ones who are hit first because when the interest rate goes up, trackers get hit immediately, in the space of a few weeks. And in some cases, the amount that's being paid back monthly has doubled. That's not sustainable.
9: No, and, and it's a very big shock. Uh, you're right, the, the rates as they get increased, the tracker people are automatically hit. Some of the banks have chosen to hold back some of the other variable rates. Some of the funds, the vulture funds have added it on straight away. Some have not added the full amount on. But the tracker rate... Gets hit full with the full amount uh, at the next sort of monthly cycle. So what happens? happens?
4: Default at a grand scale? Yeah, I think it's a
9: big tra- challenge. I genuinely think it's a very, very big challenge for people who've had their mortgage basically interest rates doubled in a matter of months, and uh, coupled with the cost living crisis, like people have choices now to make uh, in relation to heating uh, their homes, feeding their families, and, and paying for travel and transport to and from work. And then they've got now a mortgage increase that's not stopped yet, Alan. Like this is the the key part is, and I had this conversation with Michael a number of months ago. The same thing again. If this was a one-off rate increase, Christine Lagarde has said, three further meetings have been scheduled, and the expectation is, unless a miracle happens around Europe, that things will change and there won't be any further rate increases. So this is a very Difficult, challenging situation for people who've not been faced with this before, who've had record low levels of interest, who are correctly celebrating, proudly celebrating the fact that they had a tracker and telling everyone the fact that they had a tracker because it was something to celebrate. It was a level and semblance of protection contained within it. That's no longer the case. But this is real life. These are real... People and families who've got really difficult decisions to make, who are never faced with this, where their barrier between their costs and, and their income is okay. slowly, slowly being strangled.
4: Now, the reality is, as you pointed out, 2023 is not going to be a year where we will see a significant reduction in the inflation rate. And that's what we've got to look at in terms of what will dictate the ECB rate coming down. It's not going to happen in 2023, as you say yourself. We could see possibly two more incremental increases in interest rates. So going back to my point here, with those tracker rates, there is a pent-up problem there that is practically going to explode in the coming months when we see, as you say, the cost of living crisis. But the reality is the government cannot do anything. It's a suck it and hope for the best and suck it up man because there's nothing else it can do
9: yeah I think if you couple your two points with the high rates going forward and the tracker rates that's there at the moment and certainty you know the strong advice is still at this stage for people to seek independent advice from competent um, brokers to try and find if there is something that would give them some safety and security this is a very very serious issue for households Alan because this is one of a number of uh, increasing costs between car fuel how to, we know all the issues. Everyone listening to, to your programme knows all the issues. They don't need me reminding them. But is a real, real challenge. And there's a level of certainty. There's a level of being trying to be a bit clever and trying to say, well, can we try and lock down the risk for myself in relation to looking at the fixed rates? And I think going on to your local broker asking the local broker to do the research and find out for the banks at the moment and even making that application to try and find if you can get a fixed rate that give you some certainty if you're happy to gamble gamble away but this is a very serious situation for people and I, okay. I fear the level of defaults will increase I think they will come a bit later because people will prioritise correctly prioritise living eating And heating for the winter.
4: Now, it's not reasonable to expect the government to step in like they have in the rented market to protect tenants against the crisis they face due to the cost of living crisis. The government can't be seen to be getting involved with the banks around this because we have entered into a contractual agreement with the banks around mortgages. You don't live up to the contract, you default, and there are consequences. Government can't be seen to be interfering, can they?
3: Well,
9: it depends on your view. My own view in these circumstances are that Well, we'd love the
4: government to intervene, but it just would not help the it would not help the bigger picture financially?
9: No I think there's a few things they can do and you know they have a number of schemes through the insolvency service which needs to be overhauled to ensure that people get best protection there's a personal insolvency arrangement scheme which is quite a radical scheme the government introduced a number of years ago. It's under resourced and has a number of legal changes that are required to it that the insolvency practitioners have recommended the government will be well served ensuring that we don't do what we did the last time let's prepare for a troublesome number of years where there will be debt, there will be people under pressure and there will be people who need help and assistance. Let's prepare, let's, op- let's go in with our eyes wide open and let's try and prepare now to ensure that those citizens who end up in debt can uh, get avail of the state services to protect them in a competent way and try and save their homes as best they can. There will be consequences, there are consequences but there's also a very big question, Alan. There's 23,000 people from the crash still in long-term mortgage arrears, mm-hmm. all in their homes. This is a very, very big challenge because I'd warned of a tsunami, which technically legally should have happened, but the banks and the central bank seem to have adopted the policy of wait and see, values of properties have increased, and now the war in Ukraine and everything else has things over the edge. There's still 23 households, 50,000 people in their homes. And the figures, by the way, from the central bank and the banks are not my figures. They have said 16,000 of those households will lose their homes. Not at all. The Central Bank asked the banks and the Vulture Funds, how many people do you believe will lose their homes? They said last September 12 months, 16,000 households, 38,000 people. We have 11,000 currently homeless. We are in for a very, very difficult time before this impacts the current cost of living crisis, current interest rates, impacts on the people that are currently facing challenges.
4: Okay, we we'll leave it there. David Hall, CEO of iCare Housing and co founder of the Irish Mortgage Holders Association, organisation, I beg your pardon. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Welcome back to the programme. We will get to some of your comments, and there are quite a lot of them to get through before we leave you at 11 o'clock this morning. Now, from today, the first of three 200 euro electricity credits, inclusive of that, will be paid directly to more than 2.2 million customers domestic electric accounts that is including both bills including both bill pay and pay as you go customers the credit line will appear on bills from the start of November and into December depending on the household's electricity supplier and billing cycle the credit is automatic people don't need to apply for it now the second and third payment will be paid January, February, March, April joining us this morning is Susan Shaw CEO of Irish Citizens Parliament Uh, Susan good morning thank you for joining us just before we get to, to the credit Susan can you give us an idea of how difficult things have been for people that you've been speaking to since the cost of living crisis came in. Now I know we've been blessed as it were with a good uh, October in terms of it hasn't been that cold so we haven't really felt the bite of winter yet.
6: Good morning Alan. No, thankfully for that but I also think we need to remember that depending on if I'm mobile and active around my home yeah. or I'm going in and out of the house, but if I have a disability or I'm I'm more um, restricted in my movement, then often you feel the cold quicker. As we age, we tend to feel the cold a little bit more. So I think that it, while we have been, it has been great to have that milder weather. I still think people are hugely impacted by it, um, by the cost increases. Um, and I think more than anything the fear of how they're going to manage is what's really, at the moment, that anxiety around it. And I was listening to somebody the other day on the radio speak, an expert on, lack of sleep is the biggest thing for people when they start to get anxious Mm. and worry. And that's what people are saying. I'm really afraid. And we're looking at a 9.9% increase from December the 1st around electricity. So I think we need to be really careful about how that €200 is very valuable. But nonetheless... People have already got huge anxiety around it, and we haven't even hit the deepest of the winter
4: period. Now, as you pointed out, that is the single biggest troubling part of this, particularly for elderly people, the uncertainty, the fear that somebody will come knocking on the door and cut the electricity off. We need to get the message out that that is not going to be the case. It will not happen. It can't. It just cannot be allowed to happen. And the government signal their intent that it wouldn't happen. It's important to get that no. message out.
6: Oh, I think very clearly, and like we very strongly have been sending that message out. And I think lots of people really understand that, that they won't be cut off. Their fear is that it's self-imposed cutting off. That it'll be, it'll be so expensive that they will begin to limit their own heat. And that, for me, is a huge concern. That they will go out of the house because, and try and use the libraries and the supermarkets and the shopping areas you know what I mean, Mm. because there is heat there. But they will definitely limit their own heat in their own homes. But no, they will not be cut off. And I think that is a huge message to send out. We need to be really clear about that, that people will not be cut off. Um, But nonetheless, I think people will put impose restrictions on their own heating as we move in, particularly into December and January and February, when those months are really cold, people are looking like we're hearing people who in the summer during the summer sales were buying extra doomies because they knew they were going to restrict their heating.
4: Whatever about elderly people, it's all right for the likes of me and those of my age in in their 50s who are well able to keep themselves warm and able Mm -hmm. to get out and be mobile and warm up that we can live without heat for X number of hours uh, per day. But the 200 euro that's going towards these individuals, the most vulnerable individuals, does it even come close to what they require monthly between now and six months hence to get them through that difficult period?
6: Look, it's to be welcomed. There is no doubt about that. But does it come close? No, I'm afraid it doesn't. The reality for most people is that it's not going to match the needs they will have, and particularly with proposed increases coming down the line. So their electricity bills—that like it's a one-off two hundred now, mm. then another, and then—but at the end of the day. What you're talking about is €600, and some of that includes the value-added tax on electricity. And how much as well
4: will order will be used by some people, and Social Justice Ireland made this point that it will be used to pay off arrears.
6: Well, that's the risk. Absolutely, that is the risk, that people will use it. Because it's automatically stopped. if you think about it that that it comes inclusive in the bill, so therefore that will move the arrears to a different space, and I think we've got to think about that. But even if you weren't using it to cut off arrears, even if you have to pay off arrears, it doesn't go anywhere near on on the it's three three blocks of it. Mm. But we have built on a bi-monthly basis and people will still have to pay those. A lot of people cook by it. Unfortunately for older people, the reality is that they have older houses that have lower bear ratings and that they'd be using small electric heaters in the house. Do you know what I mean? That that would have been their boost rather than turning on heat. Do you know what I mean? They'll have coal fires or old style models, you know, like of, of heating. They're not like the newer houses, they're not as warm. So those kind of things will make it really, like small electric heaters are absolutely huge. But I know people that say well look, I only keep that one room Um, and that's it's trying to keep it warm. So those electricity costs will be huge.
4: Now, there is, I suppose, an onus on the organisations such as Age Action Ireland and groups like Yourselves and Vincent de Paul, and they will always step up to the mark. But we have to look at ourselves, the more able-bodied individuals and members of society who can help in some shape or form. And we're going back to the simplicity of neighbourly relationships, within our own communities. That needs to be, uh, you know, brought front and centre coming into these difficult period, these difficult months.
6: Yes, I do think so. Um, I, I, but equally, I'm not... Yes, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we all need to pull together. There is a piece around that. But for me, I'm not sure that a neighbourly gesture, and it's important, and checking in on people and making sure they're all right. Oh, like, I have... There's two people on my road. One is in, in his 80s and he's delivering meals on wheels to somebody in their 90s. So that, that, that neighbourly piece is crucial, mm. checking in. But it can't, that, you can't go into your neighbour's house for the heat. No. That's the reality. But I do think you're right. I think keeping an eye on people, checking in on them. But I think the government needs to realise that while the 200 is welcome, it isn't going anywhere near the overall cost of trying to, particularly if you're heating your home through multiple methods rather than a high, you know, energy saving newer home, I think you've got to look at it from that perspective as well. So that the electricity, yes, it's valuable, but it's not going to to meet the needs. Now, and whilst- I do think people like ourselves, um, Social Justice Ireland, St Vincent de Paul, we hammer home that message consistently, but. You know, I, well, my organisation is primarily, our, our our role is entirely about looking at policy and older people. Equally, I'm well aware of there are from our members who are saying, look, I mind my kids two days a week. I mind my grandchildren two days a week after school. Some are minding them more than that. And that's when I keep the oil on because I can't have the kids going cold. And then they'll do it out later on. You have families in that position as well. And I know that from our members because some of them are trying to help out that are not as, you know, to the pain of their collar. So anything ex- extra they have, they are trying to help families out now with bills. Whilst
4: well, yeah. none of us... while so yeah. well, 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 so, all of us do not want this to happen, the reality is it could potentially happen that there could be loss of life due to hypothermia because of the fear of being cut off and by, as you pointed out, not wanting to use up the energy when they need to use it to heat their homes. People could exactly. could pass away as a result of this.
6: I think in worst case scenario, and I hope we never come to that, but I think if you step back one or two steps from that, definitely people are not looking, they won't be able to look out for themselves as well. So they're more more prone to other illnesses. So therefore, I think it's a short-term measure when we don't think about people going more to their GP, the GP referring older people back into hospital. So a lot of those things, I think, are not being thought about. But there's, it's, it's not really a saving when you're playing with people's health. And at the end of the day, the, the services that are provided are going to have more cost on them. Because people aren't able to fully make sure that they are being fully looked after, but it's not just well heating is a crucial. But also, I, I see people cutting back on food, the, mm. the, the basics. Uh,
4: just before I let you go, Can we hear yeah, that. Before I let you go, um, Susan, do you detect and you've no doubt talked to and lobbied various groups, ministers, politicians, whatever? But do you get a sense that they are flexible to revisiting this if it's required if things get worse than had been anticipated, that we might see some more financial intervention or intervention in some shape or form? Um,
6: my sense of it is there's a reality. I think there's a, an awareness. Yes, we're going to have to revisit this. There is no choice in it. I think that that dawning is there. But as to how how aware, there is a sense for me that there's a bit of removal from the reality of just how tough it is for people. But yes, I do think there is a, a willingness to acknowledge that this okay. will no, they're already recognizing it's going to have to be to be revisited, Yes.
4: OK, we leave we it there. welcome that. OK, Susan Shaw, CEO of the Irish Citizens Parliament. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's just coming up to quarter to 11. If you want to give us a call on the programme, you can do so on 086-1800-658. number of comments I'm going to get to, hopefully, before we get to the end of the show. But let's press on. Halloween, I suppose, is well known for being a busy time for local, local fire crews and services. And this weekend, so Meath County Fire and Rescue Services called upon to tackle fire set a light outside business premises in Navantown. Town. local Fianna Fáil councillor Tommy Riley joins me with the latest on this Tommy uh, thanks for joining us can you give me the background to this and what exactly happened?
10: Good morning Alan well it, it looks like uh, these uh, hooligans I would call them emptied bins and put them up against the doors and the walls of uh, premises on Rafferty's Lane there off Margaret Square or off Watergate Street and of uh, Chekhov's at, um, off Trimga Street leading down to the fair green and set them alight. I think it's 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 absolutely disgrace that this is happening. But uh, at the back of it all, I think, you know, we need cameras on these lanes. and need them fast. We need lighting on them. But I've been looking for this for a number of years, and I know with the pedestrianisation of Trimga Street and the shopkeepers there, the businesses there were voting against it for, the, for that very reason of the antisocial behaviour that's going on in these lemmas. OK, Tommy, like just, just,
4: just for the benefit of our, our listeners, I happen to see those pictures as you probably did on social media. Yes. This could have been potentially a lot worse.
10: Oh, It could have been an awful lot worse, uh, you know. Uh, with, with electrics, with everything that was going on in, in these places, it could have, it could have been a lot, lot worse. It could have been people sleeping in their beds and the, the places could have went to fire, you know, uh, it, it's it's just, it's unbelievable this, this can happen in a town like Navin. And I'm calling for an urgent meeting of the Joint Policing Committee. And the superintendent, I want him to attend the next meeting of the Navin MD. Because this has to stop, we have to stop it, whether it's policing, whether it's cameras, wherever it takes, we have got to do it. We can't let this go on in
4: our town now it's a combination of things as you outlined there that needs to be put in place to prevent this happening but it also begs the broader conversation that we have to have around you know the social fabric of what is going on in the country in towns and villages in Ireland at the moment that it seems to be getting to the point where it's out of control people don't particularly care there's no consequences for them and they will do what they want to do
10: well you know when you see something this morning like uh, you know if you've caught morning tough they could get a fine if Donovan Thousand I'll be put in jail for two years and these these hooligans are getting away with a month in prison or two months in prison uh, and doing damage to properties and everything like that. But I, I I do believe that we've got to we've got to start nailing this in the head now. We can't just go on the way we're going on uh, limp limping along. We need an urgent meeting in the Joint Police Committee. We need the superintendent at the next uh, M D of uh, the Nav an M D meeting and I will be calling for that this week. Uh, to get that done I'm writing to th- both people the chairperson of the giant policing committee and the superintendent to call these meetings because it has to stop we have residents up in Lumley where the road has been pedestrianised for cycle lanes and that and it's a den it's a den for dealing in, in uh, anti-social behaviour and all sorts of stuff going on up there and I agree with those residents you know there's no cars passing by. It's very simple for them. Just people are afraid to walk on the road there now in Atlumini. So we've got Adlomany, we've got these laneways, and it's something that has to be looked at very, very seriously.
4: Okay, and now not not only the, the problems that you've outlined, but we had a situation where the local bus service was attacked, bricks thrown at it, and the service had to be taken off.
10: Yeah, like, like I believe that now. I haven't been speaking to anyone that was on the bus or bus drivers at that, but I believe this, this has happened. And again, again, it's... it's And it's the one crew that's at it. It's the one crew that's at it. It's not not several different crews. It's the one crew that's at it and they're just getting out of hand and it has to be stopped.
4: Okay. so what do you propose? Policing, obviously, cameras potentially, but a little bit of, you know, short, sharp shock in terms of, you know, focusing the mind of the individuals who we know are carrying out these. Definitely short, sharp. Now, when I say that, I mean mean that in the context of legislation, of prison sentences, (laughs) that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You might even go a bit (laughs) further. Well, no, I'm not going to go that further. That's why I clarified my point in relation to let's work within the boundaries of the law.
10: Yeah, yeah. Um, But uh, no, look, lighting, cameras, uh, has to be, and policing. That's the three things that has to be worked on straight away. We can't wait for this because, you know, here we are, people trying to earn a living, given employment, and great business there and the damage that has been done to them over the weekend and then the bus service that's used by a lot of elderly people, maybe not used as much as it should be, but the bus service is is a great service because for years I was trying to get the bus service to start early to bring children to school around the town, save them getting wet in the winter weather and that has been done. So it's a great service that's there and now if these early against doing this, has to stop Nordian meeting with the joint policing committee and Nordian meeting with the superintendent.
4: Okay, is is this a new manifestation or is it something that's been going on for a period of time, Tommy? Uh,
10: it, it it wasn't it wasn't as bad as it is now. It was never as bad as it is now. Okay, it was never as bad as it is now. I don't I don't know what it is. I don't know what prisoners on probably uh, the substance that a lot of these people are taking. Like we can go back a couple of years, and my son was beaten up by five individuals above an, in his shop above an ambulance. You know, so. Like, it's there and there's a certain element at it and it's the same element and they have to be have to be short, uh, shock, as you call it there, has to, be, has to be given to them straight away.
4: OK, we'll leave it there. A local Fianna Fáil councillor, Tommy Riley, thanks for joining us this morning.
6: Michael, Michael Reed on, on
4: LMFM. Now, time is galloping on. We want to talk to Gareth Adele, Dugdale from Trimgartha Station with the very latest what is happening. A couple of things we would need to talk about, uh, Gareth. Thanks for joining us. Stolen vehicle in Town on the 31st of October. What can you tell us?
1: Yeah, so Alan, the Garda are investigating an incident where a car was taken from the Corbalis area of Town on the early morning of Monday, the 31st of October, 12.30am. Now, it's a white Toyota Viz 06 registration, so if any of your listeners observed the vehicle in the area at the time or have seen anyone acting suspiciously, please make contact to the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666 111 or Ashburn Garda Station 01 801 0600.
4: And it's not the first one in the area this month either.
1: No, unfortunately. So we just want to alert your listeners there. So this is the third Japanese import vehicle that was the subject of such a crime in the past few days. So we're urging owners to take reasonable precautions to secure their vehicles um, as they are not um, always fitted with immobilisers, these type of vehicles.
4: OK, to we go then on the 28th of October, a burglary there.
1: <clears throat> yeah, so again, we had another um, incident where two unknown males entered the property after addressing the homeowner trying to impersonate three members of the Garda Síochána. This was in the Piggottstown area of Keel on the 28th of October around 250. So if any of your listeners um, see anything suspicious please make contact with Kells Garda station 046 928 0820.
4: And then to Dunboyne another burglary there.
1: Yeah this one in the quarry land area of Dunboyne on a date between Wednesday the 26th of October and Saturday the 29th of October and a number of valuable watches which were taken during the course of this incident were seeking the assistance of the public to see if they've been approached to purchase maybe these watches over the last couple of days So please make contact with Ashburn Garda Station on zero one eight zero one zero six zero zero.
4: And then an appeal in relation to the theft of a trailer. Where did that happen?
1: Yeah, so this happened in Spring Valley. Now, it happened on Thursday, the 20th of the 10th, and a media appeal had been issued before. So we're just trying to see if any of the listeners have seen this trailer or been approached to buy it. It's quite distinctive. It's an... Um, a double axle car transporter. It's a two four point two meters long with remover, r- removable, removable ramps. Sorry, and it's a German made trailer with the make not written on it. So,
4: so if anybody has any assistance for Garda Station, there. easily identifiable that one. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. the Garda Property App. What's that about?
1: Yes, this is a new uh, free app for your devices developed by Ungarda Sheikana. So, this will allow you to record and index your property, such as perhaps your bicycles, your laptops, your farm machinery. And it also allows you to record the unique information and and the photographs of it with your your property in case it should be stolen. So the app allows you then to record it then to your local garden station from there. So we're just advising listeners if they have anything valuable to try and document it up on the app and if anybody is having difficulty with downloading it or trying to use it, they can contact their local garden station and one member will no problem facilitate
4: that. And it's the one thing particularly cyclists don't do is take a picture or take a note of the frame number of the bike and it becomes so much more easier for them and when they recover them. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, and we we also have the property um, marking machine, Alan, so if anybody needs us to, to we can put an air code or a specific number to an injured party on the bike, on anything that's um, like farm machinery, cars, watches, anything like that and then if it is becomes the subject of has been uh, found and what, it comes into our PEMS property store we can easily allocate it back to the owner.
4: Okay, okay. we leave it there. Gartha, Adele Dugdale from Trim Gartha Station, thank you for joining us today. Now I know you sent in a lot of comments that we didn't get through today. That's just by virtue of uh, time constraints on our part that we didn't get to them. But I promise you tomorrow, and there were quite a lot of them, particularly around the Ukrainian refugee issue, we will get th- uh, to those tomorrow. So be under no illusion, we didn't bin them. I will read them all out for you tomorrow. We're back with you same time tomorrow. But for now, for
0: me, Alan Cantwell, good morning. <music> the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from nine on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie lmfm podcasts with cnc carpets we bring the showroom to you or book a new showroom appointment on 087-660-4237